Welcome to the House of Strauss. Yeah, go for it. Stars hang with stars, winners hang with winners. Welcome to the House of Strauss. We are joined by Nikolai Yakovenko. Did I get it right? Did I get? Did I stick the landing? Is that close enough, Nikolai? Yeah, it's great. It's perfect. Uh, oh my God. Well, okay. One of our smartest guests, a man of many hats. This individual right here. Um, we're just looking at your history, looking at your present. We've got computer engineering, uh, software programming, high-level poker, jiu-jitsu guy you are, uh, baseball analytics, uh, in addition to all of it, AI. Uh, Nikolai, is there a stereotypically male-coded space that you are uh, not involved in, just to uh, save us time? Um... Well, weirdly enough, I don't really gamble on sports. People just assume that I do, that I should. And I'm like, no, I, would do. I don't. No, yeah. no, especially with the uh, Mets hat that you're wearing, the weathered Mets hat that I wish I had. It looks quite nice. But that's not even the reason that we have you here, though we might riff on these topics. Um, it is because you are a bit of a player in this AI space and in the AI space in regards to sports coverage. Um you are part of what some of the people in the industry I come from fear, uh, the replacement by the robots, the replacement by the machines. So I want to get into all of that. I think that you're a really interesting guy. Uh, you've thought deeply about a lot of topics that I'm not well versed in, and I'm eager to learn about all of them. But let's just start up with uh, what, what are you doing in this space? Could you explain it to the good people? Yeah. I mean, covering like live events uh, with with machines and AI has been something I've been interested in for a pretty long time. You know, the, the the first project I built in this space was actually well over a decade ago when the AI wasn't very good, um, and you know, I, I just always had this desire for some reason to cover live events and sports and see what people are saying and what's going on um, in some sort of um, computer generated way. Um, Part of it, of course, is that you have all this information coming in, whether it's statistical information, play-by-play, um, people commenting on the game, and it's a little bit too much to read all of it. So, you know, could you turn it into a stream? Could you turn it into summaries that are that are informative, read- readable, and sort of catch you up? I don't, I don't know why, but I've been interested in it specifically for live events for a very long time. Well, can you tell us what your company does? Yeah. So what we're what we're doing is we're we we aim to cover all the news that is happening that you would want to know. Obviously, there's a little bit of an Amerocentric uh, view of this. So uh, you know, we're not really covering everything. We're not covering news on Mars or, frankly, even on certain continents very much. Uh, but but if you just sort of assume that Amerocentric view, you know, we 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 think that it should be possible to sort of ingest all the information that's coming in where people are tweeting articles, you know, that sort of stuff, and summarize it in a couple thousand stories that are like literally all the news that's live right now. Um, and, go ahead. 
Oh, no, I just was, uh, I, I thought it was amusing to me when I asked about Deep News, uh, th this company of yours, uh, you sent me a GPT summary. So it's like delegation on top of delegation, uh, <laughs> yeah. which and I figured um, I could read the summary uh, and you could tell me, you know, how well did GPT do? What might it be missing? Uh, Deep News utilizes AI to provide real-time news reporting. Unlike traditional aggregators, Deep News actively scans tens of thousands of sources, including news feeds, company and individual Twitter accounts, producing over 2,000 self-updating stories per day. Our focus is on concise one-paragraph stories and straightforward headlines aiming to present news without the distraction of lengthy articles or opinions disguised as news. As deep news grows, planned features include personalization for readers, automatic translation into non-English languages, historical information snapshots, live events coverage, and curated opinion perspectives. The goal is to keep AI informed up to the minute, offering a fresh take on news delivery. Um, boy, that sounds so much more in the realm of commentary and something that you might associate with a personality than a machine. But is that a proper approximation of your company? Yeah, that's pretty good. Actually, <laughs> now that you're reading it back, um, that sounds a lot better than, than I thought it did. Um, that, that's, that's the other ironic thing is, I mean, I, I, you know, I write some blogs and I can write a little bit, obviously nowhere near, you know, your level or, or even lesser journalists. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it is funny that, you know, none of us can really write in the company that well. Um, but in many cases, the AI just really does do it better. You know, it can be more succinct, more concise, leave out something that doesn't matter. Um, it is better in many ways. Yeah, I think certainly on the low-hanging fruit, and we all know it at some level. I mean, a lot of people in my industry might not come out and say it, but an AP, classic AP report on a game, for instance, uh, it is fairly programmatic. It is a human trying to act like a robot, not injecting a lot of opinion into the proceedings, uh, seizing on a few events. Um, there are interchangeable synonyms for what happened or what a player did. I used to always enjoy when a writer would have one of these synonyms that was a bit unusual that a guy claimed 11 rebounds. I might have stolen this or that, but back when I was doing that sort of work and writing what we call a gamer, even back then, if you would come to me and said an AI uh, is going to replace you doing this one day, I think I would, I would accept that. Um, I, I don't think I would fight against that even if it was 10 years ago, but I, I, am not so sure about, so I wrote this article today about the NBA's TV rights situation and it is drawing off information that you could find on the internet. Um, that is true. So in theory, AI could approximate it. And yet, I don't know. There just seems to be something a little more idiosyncratic about what's happening there that it is hard for me to envision a machine um, delivering the same kind of content. I believe you read that article. You tell me, could uh, an AI effectively produce this content that is going contrary to the conventional wisdom on the NBA tripling its rights fees in the face of an economic picture that does not presage that happening? Well, I guess the question would be that if you give the AI all of your notes, um, mm stuff you read and your thoughts on it and like little downloads of your brain, like literally maybe or not, you know, could it write something that 
is pretty good that's in your style and makes your points? I mean, I think right now, probably not. At some point, probably yes. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would definitely agree on probably not. I've seen approximations of of my writing style um, as done by AI, which makes you cringe a little bit. You feel like you're about to be satirized like somebody on SNL, but by the machine. Um, and it didn't quite didn't quite work. Um, I don't fear, I don't fear the AI. I, I do subscribe to the general philosophy that it's a tool that can help you and free you up and get rid of drudgery. Um, aspects of the job that I might not be a huge fan of. Uh, right now, I I narrate my articles. Maybe the people listening right now would disagree and would say that I need you, warts and all, to narrate the article and be you when you do it. But it would be a lot easier for my voice just to, you know, be matched to the writing and just produce an instant narration that would be more efficient. Something like that appeals to me. Um, but what would you say to somebody that's making the point that this would, in theory, get a lot of people fired, replace a lot of jobs? I mean, is this something that keeps you up at night? Is this something that you think is is a trade-off? What's your what's your thinking on it? Yeah, jobs is a weird thing, right? Because people both dislike the drudgery of their work. They're like, I have to do this. I have to show up. And they complain about it a lot. Or at least that's kind of how I think about it. And then yet mm. when they're told, okay, you don't have to do it at all, then that's even worse. So I'm not, mm. I'm, I'm not really sure, you know, um, I definitely don't think it's the best thing for everyone to become a manager. Cause I mean, you can think of it as you become the manager of the AI. So you can have a, the thing about it is you have to think like an AI, which is that mm. if you generate an article, uh, an Ethan Strauss article, there's no reason for the AI to generate one Ethan Strauss article. It makes a lot more sense for it to generate 20. Um, maybe even 200, send them to sort of like random readers who volunteer that sort of check A or B, is this better or worse? And then maybe you go and, you know, you, you know, it runs it again. And then you select the, the, the final output, maybe edit it manually and put in those, you know, uh, took 12 rebounds, little, little, little <laughs> Easter eggs, things like that in it. So I think that just the process becomes very different. And is it better? Uh, probably not. I mean, I think it's, you know, like talk to any like old school math teacher and they think people really think differently because they're not doing long division because they're, yeah. they're just not doing certain operations. Um, but I think it's also inevitable. Like I remember being in college and had old school electrical engineering professors that would be like, you have to solve circuits. You have to solve them by hand. You have to never get anything wrong. You know, he didn't do partial credit, that sort of stuff. And I mean, that just seemed pretty ridiculous to me. Like, not only was it so out of touch with what people wanted to do, what wanted to learn how to spend their time to get into engineering. Like this was something that he was clearly fighting a battle with the past. Um, like, you know, so, so this is, I think what you end up getting into. Right. And that's why I bring up college in particular is you have these situations where clearly someone's like this, you know, what is, I think is fine to say, this is how we did things. This is why you should learn it. This is useful, but still acknowledge that 10 years from now, they're not even going to do this. You know, like when I was in college again, and, as a programmer, we still have to learn assembly. And like, am I glad we did it? I guess. But now kids just don't. And they probably shouldn't, you know? Yeah. I mean, there is the loss of skills, impressive skills to what you're saying that happens. I remember Dan Carlin, Hardcore History, was describing the Mongols. And he was describing some of the skills they had 
riding on horseback, the ability to stand on the horse while shooting a bow and arrow, while going full speed, and all these other things they could do that were very impressive, and nobody can ride a horse like that anymore. Yeah. That's lost. Well, that's, so, That's so, lost so, the time. Know, they brought it back. So as Mongolia has become prosperous, you know, natural resources mm. and, and whatever, um, actually they, they have the Mongolian games where they do all these things. They do the parting shots. They do the one where they shoot underneath the horse. I mean, I was, I was involved cool. in a little bit of horse archery when I was in California. Uh, and <laughs> like, so I, I know some people who still do this a little bit, but, but it's definitely doesn't pale in comparison. Actually, like a stylized fact about, uh, archery is that, um, even like, you know, you have many different traditions of, um, of, of these of these heavy bows, you know the Japanese, you know the, the English longbow, things like that. And your typical archer back then could shoot like an eighty or hundred pound bow. That was a normal military bow, Ooh. and these were small people. And now, like you can go and like I can sort of maybe pull it. I had a friend who trained for it. He got up to one hundred and twenty pound bow. Um, but like these are the point is that the, the, the kind of stuff that is very difficult for people and very few people do were things that were completely normal for your like farmer who was also an archer yeah. you know, in, in England, France, or Japan back in the day. Uh, so these skills are lost, but they do get brought back. In Mongolia, they actually do all these trades. <laughs> they do all the, all the horse stuff. So that's kind of an interesting example you pointed out, right? Where people still actually do do it. Um, let's come back. I, I was like a classic sports argument, kind of like I want to see you do it in the playoffs. I need to see you do it in a real war, you know, for me to really <laughs> believe it. For me to really believe that you got the skills under pressure, that's when I need to see it. But yes, as as sort of just a, a, a random example, we do lose skills that are impressive skills and represent a way of life. But they're like just not blowing. optimized. That's a classic to... example. There's a little bit of glass yeah. blowing now, still in chemistry labs, but it's something that people are obviously amazing at, and a few people do it. You know, but it's like making like a like a dugout canoe. There's some people in the world that still do it, but it's a it's a, it's a tiny number. Um, and yeah. potentially it could be lost. Actually, going back to the archery one more time, I won't bring it up again. So my, <laughs> I know. My... I just love that you have every every hobby. It's just it's remarkable to me. But continue. Well, this is actually like my uh, like one of my best friends growing up. It was his hobby, and um, you know he was a martial arts guy. Uh, you know we're good friends, sort of you know through you know through the through you know math team and things like that as kids. And um, him and his friend, they actually went and translated a 16th century, uh, ch- uh, like classic, uh, uh Chinese, uh, archery manual from, you know, 16th century in, you know, from that into like modern English and modern Chinese and published it as a book, which was quite good. Um, parts of it actually were, 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 you know, this was, this was rewritten and copied many times. Yeah. So actually I think the best preserved copy of it was in a library in Japan somewhere because this was that impactful. But it's, it's reading. It's interesting reading the book with commentary because it's all like this guy who was already an old man then saying, "People nowadays don't know how to shoot a bow properly mm. the way we did seventy years ago." So uh, <laughs> you 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 get these kind of things. Um, you it know, was it, it was always thus, and I love those sorts of documents. There's um, a book by Bill Buford um, where, among other things, he works in the Mario Batali kitchen before Mario Batali was canceled. Uh, but he also goes back to Italy and he looks for some of the original documents of uh, people who wrote the first cookbooks. And uh, I, I got to say, it's not appetizing. There is this fantasy. There is this nostalgia that you will go back to the source and you will find something better. But then sometimes you read or you look into it. And yeah, there was a lot of um, inefficiency, shall we say, that needed to be sanded out 
by by time. But I, I can completely understand lamenting a lost way of life um, and lamenting lost skills and also, you know, having a general concern, as I often do, that our use of technology is outpacing our ability to adapt to it. And it's just beyond our our capability. And especially in the realm of social media, for instance, I've certainly, I think you could make a very good argument, a very persuasive argument that that has been a net negative for society on balance. Uh, Tyler Cowen or somebody else would perhaps make a counter argument, but you could certainly do it. So on the one hand, there is that classic story of nostalgia clinging onto the past. But on the other hand, I, I, I'm, I don't like when people just rubber stamp the present and the future as obviously good. Things go wrong. Things get worse sometimes. Well, Bill James talks about this, right? Um, where where things evolve and they get they move in a certain direction, but that isn't necessarily good. You know, so for example, yeah. you take the pitch in motion, a lot of things in baseball, they do move, they do standardize. Um, then they would on their own. It's not that people forcing it necessarily, but it doesn't necessarily mean evolution is always better. There is an assumption that evolution moves forward and this idea of forward progress, and that's just not always the case. I mean, certainly, you know, take someone like a Tony Kornheiser, who I grew up listening to on, on DC uh, talk radio. I mean, people like that wouldn't exist now. There just isn't the path for someone to go do what he did. And, you know, whatever you think of Mr. Tony's uh, sports takes, I mean, mm. he was clearly a a very good and very entertaining and very clever writer. Yeah. And, and and I enjoy this show. And and he is now the product. Bar- Barack, the o- Bar- Barack Obama's favorite golf partner, I believe. Really? Whatever that's nice. worth. Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, it, I mean, Mr. Tony is amazing. But it's also, you, you have that situation, right, where even say you enter baseball, um, you're not entering baseball from scratch. So as a new player, you're, you're learning skills and developing things to break into the league, which is full of players who already existed learn stuff from the past and i think in, in things like sports journalism it's just different because it's going to take you know people have careers that take decades as opposed to you know at most five or ten years like a baseball player tend to be so i think you have this interesting situation where you're also from even, yeah like you're, 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 you're even from like a game theory standpoint um you know if you're a young person now let's just say okay you're learning social media because it is useful that's that is maybe your best way of learning things making an impact getting involved in media today um in the existing media landscape but once the people who are already there are gone for 20 or 30 years in the future you end up in a situation where all the glass blowers are gone and no one learned glass blowing right so i think that's that's definitely a viable situation at the same time humans are very adaptable right i mean i think that that's that's really the, the biggest thing that separates us um you know from from the other animals but also from the ais or for now anyway AI is getting a lot more adaptable, <laughs> but like, that's the thing that blows my mind. Honestly, this is like my, my, my sort of biggest, like sort of one of my big arguments is people, pe- people are much, much better at computers at learning new things, making changes, making adaptation and things like that. And we are much worse at repetitive tasks, generally speaking. And yet mm. people just want to shut off their brain and do repetitive tasks. And, and mm. I don't understand, like that's, that's, to me, it seems not only boring, but also just what makes us less human, you know? So I think yeah. the idea is now you should, you know, like, you know, people can can change. They can go from being a, a you know, a poker player to a media journalist, you know, to a virology expert. And like, we joke about it, but like, we actually can do that to some extent, you know? Uh, so wait, do you think that they want to do the repetitive task? What sort of repetitive task do you mean? Um, 
Or are they afraid people, of having it taken from them? I think people are people are very creative and very adaptive and very malleable, um, but also extremely lazy. So I think it's really sort of the 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 the, the, the sort of the, the duality of it, right? Like mm. the yin yang of it is that on on the one hand, we can absolutely adapt and learn anything. I mean, somebody can cut your finger off and like it'll suck, but you'll get used to it, right? And after like a couple of years, you won't even really realize it anymore, you know. They say except except for traffic, right? People that what well, was the famous meme? People never get used to traffic and get used to anything else. Um, <laughs> but um, you have that on the one hand, uh, on, and on the other hand, maybe it goes hand in hand. We are lazy, like like uh, we want to get we want to get the information as soon as possible. We want to do as little work as possible in every facet. Like that is just our nature as humans. You know, uh, we are, I mean, other than wrestlers, maybe we're inherently like, we want to do the least amount of effort with the most upside and the most rewards. So, you know, it's a good thing in many ways, but, but it does lead us uh, to be constantly miserable because even if we find the good equilibrium, we can't stay there. Cause like we want to optimize it. We want to be lazier. Mm. We want to think less. <laughs> we mm. want to try less hard and have the same outcomes. And like everyone universally does, right? Like this is just the yeah. human nature. You know, whereas the AI doesn't care. The AI is really like your, um, you know, what's the horse from 1984, right? Just like, just works. Doesn't complain. I was going to go with a sports analogy. I was going to go with the Dennis Rodman, uh, somebody who will do the dirty work, um, you know, do the things. I mean, he kind of envisioned himself that way. When I read the uh, the classic tome, Bad As I Want to Be, with the different color fonts and uh, Rodman naked on a motorcycle on the cover, uh, a book in which he describes having sex with Madonna. Uh, but he also just talked about envisioning his role as the one who would do the tasks that nobody else wanted to do and that's a way that he could fit in and augment the operation and um i mean maybe that wasn't somebody who was envisioning themselves like an ai but that is an intriguing topic to me nikolai is when our interaction with these machines leads to people thinking and acting in a way that is almost algorithmic i, I wrote about the cavender twins i wrote about these these um, Zoomer influencers where when you're around them, you can see them gaming the system in a way, but gaming the system really just means gaming human psychology. And they're not even, they're about as aware of what they are doing as an AI might be. They are not, I, I don't want to be dismissive, but they are not deep thinkers. They are intense thinkers. You know, they are doing something that you and I could not do. Um, and this is their space, but they're not really thinking about broader implications, but they're just really good at knowing, well, when I do this, this happens. And when I A, B test and this happens and that happens. And, um, I'm not even sure if I'm making, I'm, I'm creating a good question for you other than to say that we almost have the humans and we've got the AI and then we've got the humans interfacing with the technology we have and becoming more like AI. What do you think about all of it? Well, I think that we we give AI a little bit too much credit for this sort of like uh, game theory A/B testing thing because it's it's super good at this enclosed systems that it can simulate and control like a chess game. Um, but while it, while for most people they could never play chess at anything like a level of even a even a very weak AI, um, they could potentially do something like figure out what's what's some viral content what would be interesting. You know, they can do you know, perhaps the Chael Sonnen, you know, <laughs> referencing him again. Yeah. But in reality, the AI couldn't do that at all because 
Chael has, obviously Chael is extremely good at what he does. Um, he's probably the best in terms of, you know, sort of UFC trolling type content and mm. talking to the audience, but it is sort of formulaic. It's repetitive, you know, um, but there, there isn't a system where you could, where the AI could try something and get feedback, right? Like there isn't actually a way of simulating that world. Maybe, maybe a more concrete example that I've been obsessed with for years is, um, you know who Max Martin is, right? The right, the songwriter. No, I don't. So, so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a pseudonym for, um, a, I forget his real name, but you know, it's, it's, it's a stage name for, for a, for a Swedish songwriter who's written, um, I think something like 36 number one pop hits. Uh, so the, <laughs> Anthony Mays in the chat who knows his music is, is, oh, uh, yeah. is rattling off the details. He's probably so oh, disappointed yeah, exactly. in me right now. Look, I knew his real name. I knew, oh, I knew him as Carl Martin Sandberg. I, I just didn't oh, okay, know the, I didn't know the pseudonym, Nikolai, of course. That's yes, right. That's right. So Max Martin, who kind of like looks like a, like, like a nerd with, you know, a ponytail, exactly what you think of like your nerdy music producer to, to look like. Um, so he's written number one hit songs uh, from, I think, Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. Uh, that was probably one of his early hits. Uh, to He's still writing songs for, like, The Weeknd. I mean, all kinds of different pop singers. Um, yeah, yeah, your producer saying 25 Billboard number ones. I just said 36, so I, I had a little bit of inflation there. But, but he's written mm-hmm. hundreds of songs, right, maybe thousands of songs. He obviously has staff, but as a machine, they write these songs. And I've been obsessed with years, is like, for years with... When can a, the AI be good enough to, to write a number, to write a, not even a number one, but just a hit pop song? When can it do it? Because it clearly can't. Another like fun sort of stylized fact slash opinion is I remember going at the, the, the NeurIPS conference, formerly known as NIPS, uh, uh, where mm-hmm. they, they would always have this creativity workshop on the last day. It was always one of my favorite parts of the AI conference. And they talked about this stuff. And they mentioned that it's probably not a, uh, probably not random that a lot of these songwriters are from Northern Europe and hmm. uh, their, their native language is not English, even though they're very good at English. And one of the theories for why this happens all the time is that they are, what makes like a hit song is actually how it sounds, not what it means. So if like hmm. the meaning is a little bit less important to you, it's like a stick figure, right? Like yeah. if me and you draw a stick figure, it, it's bad art, right? Because we're drawing sort of the shape, not to look, have it look cool. So the point is they maybe have a little bit more insight to people whose English is in their first language to what to what things sound like uh yeah. so I, I always of course think of some of the germans you know they had like you know scorpions and things like that and they just had these really interesting cool like lyrics that sound cool but you're like yeah it does sound like you can understand why someone who's german would think of that and someone who grew up um in new york maybe wouldn't but anyway the point is that like there obviously is a formula there's obviously testing and a b testing and, and sort of the reinforcement learning aspect to their songwriting it's like uh, you know, Max Martin, you know, it's not like he didn't want to write 300 number one singles. Why does he only have 25? Um, mm. But, you know, they can only produce so many songs and every song he writes for Rihanna, some of them don't even make the album and most of them aren't hits, right? So so, so it would be interesting to see if AI can uh, do it because really? if it did, it could write thousands. But it clearly can't write any. You know, and, and, and part of it is that unlike chess, we don't get the feedback. It doesn't actually get to play it, have it listen to people, have them rate it, and then tune the yeah. model and regenerate it. But but what I'm leading into is that with uh, Chad GPT, that's exactly what they did. I mean, you probably know about this. Probably a lot of your listeners have. But they took a bunch of outputs to try to answer people's questions, and then they send millions of these examples to a team in Kenya, 
uh, where they had millions of things rated and the AI would retrain and it would try again. And, and, and all the humans sat there and said, okay, which, which answer is better, A or B? Rank this from one to seven. So for millions of those feedbacks, they were able to basically, you know, make this big breakthrough. So, so I, so my, my, so my point is, I think that unfortunately the rest of us still have feedback um, from people, from listening to things and the AI kind of doesn't, but once it does, mm. then, you know, maybe it can write some hit songs, maybe it can make some trolley internet content, but right now it's, it, it can sort of, it, all it can do is imitate. All it can do is look at the output and be like, let me make something like this. But as we know from multiplicity, yeah. that's just not what we want. Well, the ability to just run so many tests and do so much more in terms of testing than human beings can yeah. do um, could unlock quite a bit. I mean, I'm fascinated by what what is it about human psychology or our brains that makes a hit song a hit song? And why do they have to be different? So you need some element of novelty to it. Then there's this ineffable part where we want an aspect of celebrity attached to it. I don't think people want their songs coming from AI. They want it coming from Drake or from Rihanna. But I mean, I remember I don't know that Drake AI about, song did pretty well. Oh yeah, it did do pretty well. But they want it attached to Drake, is what I'm saying. They don't want the robot came out with a new song. Maybe I don't know. Maybe that's the future. So, 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 so um, uh, I, for, I forget the name, but there, there's a there's actually an AI generated. Uh, like sort of like te uh, text to voice um, pop singer in Japan has been popular for over a decade. Um, ah, well, yeah, I, 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 I might I, be I wrong about name, that. Yeah, yeah, I, I I could be wrong about it, but I guess the point I'm making is that if you run enough of these tests, um, what secrets of human psychology might you unlock? Whereas we would never perhaps get there if we were just doing it in more of a slapdash inefficient way. I, I want to know the answer. I don't, I'm not a very musical person. Um, I, when I go running, I listen to a podcast, but I want to know why I want to know why the, you know, the uh, Nordic song makers have more success and what they're plumbing because whatever, whatever the answer is to that is going to lead to the answer to a bunch of other questions. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I, I completely agree that, I mean, it's like it's like two major steps away, right? Um, but I agree. Once we have that simulator, where you could study a, a concrete problem like that, like like the AI can generate and rank humor. Um, so another mm -hmm. concept that people don't really do directly anymore, but as a concept, that's really powerful. This idea of the generative model, right, with the generator and the critic. So you have two models that sort of compete against each other. One tries to fool the other one, basically. So it's this game mm -hmm. where. You say, okay, I'm going to write jokes that are so good you, that the other AI can't tell the difference between uh, Anthony Jeselnik and like my and my Anthony mm -hmm. Jeselnik jokes, right? And both AIs, you have to sort of trade them off. They sort of it's like an arms race. So you want one not to be more really more powerful than the other. But the idea is that over time they're playing this game, which is wasteful. But at the end, you produce an AI that tells Anthony Jeselnik jokes that are just as good as Anthony Jeselnik which is great because then you can give us some current event and you're like, what would Anthony Jeselnik say? And, you know, if, if you're someone who's interested in that, then. <laughs> well, how far away are we? I mean, I feel like he's somebody where he's got such a defined style and rhythm that maybe we are not so far away from, from doing a good uh, Jeselnik approximation. You tell me. I don't know. Um, I think that from what I've seen, 
from what like we certainly have now, it's still a lot closer to imitation. So it's like, it's, it's, um, you know, it takes a Shakespearean sonnet or something like that. Like for, for a while, the AI can make joke like objects or sonnet like objects or just like objects. So you look at it, you're like, yeah, that's sort of like it, but it isn't really it. So I think, you know, I, I, at some point you sort of cross over that line where you really do suspend disbelief. Um, I think right now, kind of like going back to the Drake thing, it's clearly not Drake, but it's a cool voice. We know that that sort of combination of features is something that's familiar and people like, so it's clearly not Drake, but it still is cool. So I think we're still in a creativity at that stage where the AI has sort of its own signature. You see the same thing in AI art, um, especially I think the early generation where it's a little bit more raw and a little bit like more messy. It's a little bit more kind of like, um, like, unrefined it was actually better in a way because it was like this own style you're like man that's like a value mm. to style art where it's making the extra fingers it's doing weird stuff um there's a couple of really really nice nft projects that people really enjoyed there but yeah a couple of, for whatever reason also northern european those but these artists who actually took advantage of the weird hallucinations and made really cool like almost human-like things where it sort of like explicitly plays with that sort of uncanny valley um and it looked amazing um but I think at some point, yeah, it, you do get to the point where, like the spatial audio, right? Something Ben Thompson talks about, where the audio is, yeah, we know we're not in the same room, but it gets close enough where you can just sort of, you know, suspend disbelief and, and not care. So I don't think we're at the level yet where people would enjoy a, a synthetic Jesselnik show. Uh, <laughs> but I think at some point that would be interesting. And, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, you know, maybe, you know, you don't have to travel, you know, an hour on the train to, to see the real thing, even though people will, I actually think it'll, it'll attract even more attention to the real thing, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. People want to see if it can imitate the real thing. It's difficult though with comedy. I mean, comedy has been defined as benign violation. Uh, I think somebody, a professor once brought that to Louis CK and Louis CK, said get out of here you're you're wrong that's not that's not what it is i, I think that's very difficult um that's it's just socially advanced to approximate comedy but i i'm very interested in ai machine learning the the ability to reveal new pathways um new ways of doing things because it's almost counterintuitive one would think that this is just a beast of burden to take the repetitive task off our hands, but as, as I was discussing with uh, with Kyle Bodie uh, of Driveline, your 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 friend, as Tony Kornheiser would say, your boy, your, your boy, boy Kyle Bodie. Um, we were talking about that AlphaGo movie and how something funny happened with the machine that plays Go. It unlocked this new way of playing the game that no human had ever considered before, and thus opened up a whole new pathway to human beings for how to play just because it was it, it was without the whatever intuition that we go in uh, having. And so that to me is a very interesting aspect here where it's not just taking the drudgery off of our hands, but also opening up a new pathway to creativity potentially. 100%. Yeah. And actually the go thing is a just a a more interesting example of exactly what happened with Backgammon. So Backgammon was a very popular game in the 1980s, probably peak then. Uh, people wrote books and gambled for it for big money, and it was a very, very big thing. But the problem with all those books, they're all wrong. Because then 1989, it was the first neural network that was actually used for games was for Backgammon in the late, in, in the, in the late 80s, early 90s. 
uh, before even deep neural nets. And it uncovered this way of playing, which is just better. Um, and it's much, much more aggressive, much more like living on the edge, you know, like just really like, I'm missing a good sports analogy, but really like open, fun, like, like putting it out there, kind of like, you know, like two guys, like, like going hard at each other, like throwing combinations kind of way of playing, which is exactly how everyone plays now because it's just better. It's just more effective. Like if you played the old, more conservative uh, style, it just happened to be wrong. You know, in some cases like chess, it turns out that maybe like the humans were pretty correct and were pretty close to the optimal strategy actually, but in backgammon, they just weren't. And I guess go sounds like the same kind of thing. Um, and yeah, usually the AIs do tend to be more aggressive, more interesting, more on the edge. So I, I absolutely think that could happen in, in other fields um, as well. Yeah. Well, we're oddly machine-like in the way we are. We're, we're highly mimetic. And I, I think I made talking about the go, the analogy to basketball and how, Manu Ginobili came over here, uh, being from South America, playing in Europe, and popularized just stepping sideways with your two steps before you go up with a layup. You know, we call it a Euro step now. I mean, that was always within the rules that somebody could do. But the way we do sports is we learn how to do it from the person teaching us, and we're just copying each other. And so even though in theory we're so creative you see these pockets where we're not creative at all. We're locked in a pattern and the machine is the thing that has the potential to actually break us out of the pattern. That's right. Yeah. I mean, again, it's sort of the, the, the duality of it, right? I mean, look at learning any sport, you know, jujitsu is kind of the one I'm spending most of my time on these days, but it's a combination of, 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 of learning things that worked in the past. So you save a lot of time and trying new things. And you always have this tension between it. If you're doing too much of one, that's a problem. If you're doing too much of the other, it's a problem. People get mad. Um, you know, and, and, and I think that the, the problem with the AI version of it is frankly, like things like IBM Watson, like they've just been doing this false advertising now for about a decade of how like, oh, AI will like, like reprogram your whole system. It'll like invent your recipes. Like it'll like discover mm. drugs and things like that. And all of these things have turned out to be mostly bullshit, you know? So I think that people are rightly cynical because it hasn't worked and it's been like overpromised and kind of falsely advertised and a bit fake um, for about a decade now. And I mean, I'm, I guess I'm singling out IBM Watson because they're so bad at it. But I mean, a lot of people have done that, you know, and they're not the only ones. So I think mm -hmm. that. Um, well, why do you think it works sometimes? Why does an AlphaGo reveal a new pathway and break our pattern? Um and yet we're getting overpromised with IBM Watson. Why does it work yeah. and then why does it doesn't? Why 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 doesn't it when it doesn't? Yeah, because because humans and computers are very different in the way that we learn and process things. So the uh, the 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 computers have a, a major advantage is, is that they can use um, they can use scaling, right? Um, I mean that's how sort of deep. Uh, Deep Blue had the first like super computer, superhuman chess player is, is really just by, by doing a lot of calculation. They, mm -hmm. they made things embarrassingly parallel. They basically built something like their own chips because I guess, you know, NVIDIA, <laughs> CUDA wasn't really a thing back then, but essentially now you would just do this with CUDA, which is exactly what, um, what, 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 uh, Alpha, Alpha, Alpha Zero did. Um, where you, instead of coding like very complicated logic, you, you, you really take advantage of power of search and like 
very simple evaluation. If you could lo- move, if you could look five or 10 moves into the future, you don't need a very accurate evaluation function of what that future is going to be. And in fact, all of these systems, including the AlphaGo, like they'll give you a pretty accurate evaluation of the current position, but then it's much, much better if you go and you search deeper. So it has this ability to search, to look to look in the future, to do a lot of calculations. Like I was saying in the AI thing, to generate 10,000 songs. In the case of Ethan, to write 500 versions of your article. In the case of Bill Simmons, generate 1,000 podcasts, right? It's much better at that, but it's much worse at intuition, at evaluation. Like you have, you have exponential uh, computation in one hand, but then you have a log probability of things falling off on the other hand. Right, you know mm-hmm. the famous thing where, in theory, the monkeys with a typewriter could write a Shakespeare, but the probability is so low. You know that's really what you're trading off. You know, so you do need some guidance. You need the model to get develop better intuition. And I think, in the case of, in the case of humans, it's not even necessarily that our intuition is better. But since we're doing things for other humans, like I guess maybe just in our DNA, maybe we just inherently are have are better wired to understand what other humans would like, which is why I'm so interested in the song, the joke part. You know, these are things that are completely synthetic, yeah. right? Yeah. It's, it, it, these are the artistic expressions of the human soul that you in theory would not be able to approximate. This might be and, and they're common. And, and yeah. I, I think like that, that's what actually drives me crazy about art. People try to claim that art can be anything that it's not objective. Like people have strong consensus on what, what is beautiful what is funny? Um, oh, and be, I'm and be, be, by this. Yeah, pe- people like people focus on the disagreement and the noise, which of course exists. But there's still massive commonalities. You know, there's like the vast majority of things are not funny, and you have small islands of things that are very funny, um, and it's just objectively true. And then people focus on the parts like, well, geez, I don't, I don't like, I don't find Chris Rock's humor to be funny. Well, the vast majority of people do actually. At least I live in America. Other than I guess as Scott Adams says, the thirty percent of people who are born with that sense of humor. And they literally don't perceive humor at all. Well, they live um, in Northern Europe and they make our hit songs. So it's okay. Everybody has their, uh, everybody has their, their role to play. Um, I mean, the, the humor, it's so, I mean, the aforementioned Louis C.K., I remember after he did get canceled, a bunch of people saying that he's not funny. And then that's a weird thing because it's, wait a second, you found him funny, but now because you've got this association with him, you react differently to it. Um, there's just this inherent subjectivity, subjectivity to comedy. I would just say that he's just objectively hilarious. And that's, that's a whole other conversation about how the culture war manifests in such a way that people stop accepting or admitting that some people are just legitimately talented at what they do, whatever you think about them or whatever their, their politics might be. But uh, to shift it to perhaps even more um controversial subject would deep news or could deep news um escape what the new york times has gotten itself into of late there was a rocket uh it hit a hospital in gaza uh, it appears that the new york times might have jumped the gun in its original portrayal of the story they've been walking back they've been backtracking uh Something like deep news, I think, is probably at the mercy of whatever is on the internet. Uh, how could it avoid a similar mistake? Yeah, it's an interesting example. I was wondering if you'd bring it up. So, just sort of to recap quickly, um, what what happened was that there was a there was an announcement from, I guess, um, I'm not exactly sure who, but from you know uh, uh, 
the Palestinian side in Gaza that a rocket hit a hospital and 500 people died, which of course is terrible and a tragedy. Um, there was also some credible looking evidence that Israel claimed that Israel side that they launched the rocket, that there was a social media post that was deleted. So um, there was like some credible evidence to think that this could have happened and that uh, that they that they did try to cover it up and et cetera. But then as more information came in, um, essentially you have all these different facts culminating with the fact that the next day people were posting satellite images of the location. Yeah. And not only and, was there no the, rocket, the hospital was fine. Yeah. Yeah, and a lower body count, like some body count, but not what it was made or, or, out to be. Yeah, as. yeah, definitely not 500. Because right? 500 is, is, is a very large number. And that's what kind of seems suspicious to me from a just even from like a logic perspective, that it's, yeah. it's, 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 a, it's a number that seems made up and, and kind of high um, yeah. and, and strange, right? I mean, even the videos of the projectile people were speculating the night before, it doesn't, didn't look that big. I mean, it turns out it was something that was a stray rocket or something that landed in the, park, in the parking lot and you know, burn some cars down, possibly hit some people, but not 500. Right. Um, yeah. But so I'll tell you what, what happened on deep news is that um, we obviously focus on getting things quickly and also sort of just at a high level aggregation, right. People saying similar things. So we have a lot of sources that we try to follow, you know, from, from both sides and general commentators, et cetera. And then, you know, people like Jake Shields who decided to chime in on this for whatever reason, you know, they're all sort of in our, you know, 20,000 sources. Right. And, and we showed basically multiple immediately without doing anything. We showed multiple versions of the story because they sort of clustered together. So we had the mm -hmm. view of like here, Israel did this and covered it up and blah blah blah, and sort of links through. You can read and find who said it and why. Um, and then you see the other side. You see the announcements. So so usually for some straightforward stories, we would really just have one story. In this case, we probably had about a dozen. But I think in this case, that's completely correct. So we're not like automatically labeling, you know, this site said this, this site said that. But if you look at the sources, you can figure it out and you get a very short summary um, of each one. So I think I think in, our, in, in this case, it was actually quite helpful for tracking the story. Other than, of course, we, you know, we we weren't surfacing the images and the videos very directly. But just, you know, we're mostly focusing yeah. on the text, which you could find them if you wanted to. I, I think that is the way to approach it. And I think sometimes media is a victim of needing to have the comprehensive take yes. on a situation that is in dispute. Um, I know I've written about Trevor Bauer, for instance, and it, it appeared that that was a situation where I would have preferred that the media report said, look, his accuser is saying this, but he is saying that. And you can, hey, you can decide. And we're not, we're not saying this or that happened because frankly we do not know and we're just giving you the information and we're giving you the different perspectives and you can figure that out as a consumer but i think in media there's a lot going on there's the the need to feel like you have the authoritative this is what happened and there's also the need to sometimes shepherd uh your readership ideologically so they know the correct thing to think about what happened and I think it gets in the way of often knowing what happened or perhaps knowing what might not have happened. Well, that's right. And and furthermore, I, I kind of feel for the journalists, maybe. Um, I think I might have a hard time reading, uh, writing, summarizing the point of view for something that I don't agree with or I think is is, is, is just a mm -hmm. little bit off. And, and, and it's not that I couldn't do it. I think as a professional, you can do it. But I would almost rather the AI do it. In fact, we got a lot of people uh, mm. for the Israel story, but others as well, saying that they kind of 
they kind of like, they really find it refreshing how deep news is. I wouldn't say objective, but just straightforward. You know, it's just, this is what these people are saying. You know, it's, it's, it's like a, it's, it's like a, it's like a Taylor Swift song. This happened. I was feeling this. I was thinking this, like, it's just, <laughs> like, it's very direct, which is great. You know, um, I'm going to listen to some Taylor Swift AI uh, mashups. That's my guilty pleasure. Even if I'm not a music guy, I like going on YouTube and hearing Freddie Mercury sing some song that existed after he was, uh, after he died. Um, wow. uh, who knows? Who knows why I, I stumble upon whatever I stumble upon on YouTube. I do want to ask some questions about something that overlaps with, um, with your expertise, uh, that has been blowing up a little bit. Um, I, I loved Moneyball as a book. I've met Michael Lewis one time. He was as nice as can be. Uh, he is in a lot of hot water criticism, not just for whatever happened with The Blind Side, where I felt like a lot of that was perhaps unfair, but because he has written a book about Sam Bankman Freed and the, uh, collapse of um ftx and uh and and everything else we've got the trial going on and he seems to be quite defensive towards bankman freed so, so the people do not so the people listening know nikolai does have thoughts on this i'm not just taking a shot in the dark on it i do have some prior knowledge beforehand but i i want to know what you think man i want i want the uh, the people listening to get a sense of your take on the um besieged michael lewis and if he is wrong to be as sympathetic to uh, Sam Bankman-Fried as he appears to be. Right. Yeah, it's been kind of an interesting story. I mean, the Sam Bankman-Fried trial is still ongoing. I think it's, you know, day 12 or something like that. Um, there's some good places covering it. Actually, shockingly few things in deep news. I'm not sure why. Maybe not that many people are talking about it. But um, I kind of wonder... Okay, so yeah. as I asked you that question, I kind of wonder if this is one of those stories that's more interesting to media um than it is to everybody uh which is too bad if we're talking about it because that people are just clicking off right now but i do have that i do have that spidey sense of it i think they made that movie for instance about the um the guys who invested in gamestop on on reddit i can't remember what that movie's called uh but it bombed, money. i believe yeah. yeah dumb money dumb money yeah and i think dumb money bombed because that was one of these stories that maybe was more interesting narrowly than it was broadly and i think that this this might be the case about sbf but thank god i'm a subscription service because even if it's narrow as long as it's interesting that's about what we need to do here yeah interesting i'm i don't know i mean i, I think the sbf story is very interesting um but 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 sometimes yeah i mean i, mean, I, I think the dumb money thing is just more hollywood right you know, no one yeah. really knows what's going to be a hit you know um like, would people have guessed that Oppenheimer would be a hit? You know, maybe. Like, in, in retrospect, we can explain a million reasons why it's interesting, but you could also see something like that bombing, and it was the biggest hit. So sometimes sometimes things just go in a certain direction. I thought that the... I didn't see the movie, but I, I definitely thought that uh, that that dumb dumb money, like the idea, the story of the, of the Wall Street bets was kind of interesting. Um, yeah. I can see the movie being cringe, but I can also see the movie being cringe to that being, like, in its favor, you know? So who knows? Um, I, I definitely think that people will try to make a movie about SPF and most likely it'll bomb because most movies do. Um, but, but it could be good. I mean, people like courtroom dramas sometimes. I don't know. I mean, going back to it, right? Like somehow Grisham, 
wrote a bunch of them that were great and and became yeah. mostly good movies. You know, like I enjoyed some of those. Some of those. Social Network is effectively a courtroom drama about yes. a, a subject who might have some overlapping qualities with SPF, and that was a huge that was a huge smash hit. But to return to to return to Michael Lewis, uh, do you think that he has been captured and uh, that he? has been snookered by a swift-talking Ponzi scheme con artist guy? Or do you think that there's any sort of argument uh, to suggest, as Michael Lewis is suggesting, that SPF just screwed this up unknowingly through his ignorance and through his myopia of being this neurodivergent person who only focuses on what he focuses on? Yeah, so I think Michael Lewis is a bit like... Uh, like 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 Tony Kornheiser in that he's all about personalities and narratives. And I think people, you know, like me and you who enjoy sports and probably enjoyed Tony, Mr. Tony have never thought very highly of his actual sports predictions or picks mm. or analysis whatsoever. And it's like, it's not that Mr. Tony isn't smart. He's obviously very smart, but kind of like Michael Lewis, he was a, uh, you know, he was a, he was not a math major, let's just say. And mm. I think that is just from listening to, you know, in preparation for this, I mean, from listening to Michael Lewis's latest appearance on Barry Ritzhall's Masters in Business and things like that, you really get the feeling from his perspective that he just doesn't, they're just, he just cares about the personality of it. He finds, mm. you know, he finds it interesting. He finds it so interesting how weird Sam Bankman's Freed was and focusing on the personality. Like, yeah, maybe he feels a little sorry for him, but that he had no friends and all of these stories. And these stories, by the way, seem really to be honest, exaggerated, to be quite mm. honest, like we've all known strange people and neurodivergent and whatever the new term is, and they are strange and weird, but like, it seems that Sam kind of like, from my perspective, it, it sure seems that Sam played that up because he played up everything else too. I mean, it's a pretty extreme, pretty, pretty extreme fraud start to not just like, Oh, like I drive, I, I wear a dirty t-shirt and I drive a used car. While at the same time, you know, having private jets and allegedly having Amazon packages delivered by private jet. I mean, you really can't huh. think of a more extreme case where you're, 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 you're making commercials telling people that you drive a car because you're saving money to help the world. And while at the same time, just blowing tens of millions and absolutely nothing like it's, yeah. it's a and. And I think Michael Lewis found that part also interesting, but just from listening to him talk about it, like he just, maybe he didn't want to focus on the fraud part. Maybe he didn't find it interesting. I mean, as he pointed out, he doesn't care about crypto. He wasn't very interested. He thought Sam wasn't either. Sam was just doing it because that was the game in town. So I think it's kind of a very, kind of, I would always say like a very elite perspective where you can have like, just think of it, thought experiment. Young Michael Lewis, who no one has heard of, was writing liar's poker and breaking in. Kind of like, Kind of like the, you know, I wouldn't say no one's heard of, but like a young Thomas Friedman, who's an up and coming journalist, you know, their first books are going to be like very, very objective in a sense. They just tell a good story because it's not about them. As you get older, it's more about them and their opinions and their worldview. Mm -hmm. And they get to choose which part is interesting. I mean, he literally talks about, he's like, look, Flash Boys. So he's, he doesn't seem very open to the criticism of Flash Boys just completely being kind of wrong about how HFT works. But he's like understands that the story wasn't interesting because the personalities were interesting. So he's literally telling Barry Ritzholtz on on, on on Masters in Business, oh, like I found Sam to be this interesting character, this interesting character. He's saying it over and over and over. So it's like yeah. it's it's not that he's not it's maybe that not that he's not aware of the fraud and the market and the market stuff and just just the blatant sort of like gangsterism of it. He just 
that part isn't interesting to him. So he focused on the part that's interesting to him, how the guy was weird and strange and awkward, but then became this like media darling. You know, I, I caught a whiff of that when he was on 60 minutes and he was talking about how Sam Bankman fried had forged this friendship with Tom Brady and it was interesting to Michael Lewis that yeah. you had the classic jock and the high school nerd of nerds and yes. that they had this friendship and they really did actually get along. But then when you dig into it, Sam Bankman fried paid Tom Brady about $55 million. It's not really that interesting that you would get along with somebody who paid you $55 million for one day of work. Uh, they could be the strangest individual on the planet, and you're probably going to work pretty hard on your Zoom call to be very friendly, very open, and see the best in them. So I saw that that was not integral to the story, of course, but I saw that as an example of trying to fit what's happening to this this narrative about contrasting personalities as opposed to what was really going on, which is that people's loyalty was bought with money. People's myopia was bought with money. And it's a pretty simple story, at least in that respect. Yeah, 100%. And, and, and Michael Lewis could have written that story. And I think that's what annoys you know, people like us is that he could have just written that story and that's a fine story. And maybe that's a decent book, but he just decided like, Nope, you know, I'm, you know, you, you see this a lot in sort of to, to bring in way too many topics. This, like you see this a lot in like academia, you see this in AI, for example, you see this with, uh, I'm not going to name names, but sort of oh, like retired don't. and legendary. <laughs> yeah. Retired and legendary people, you know, who like really did great things as scientists and, you know, whatever. And on their way out when later in their career, you know, you, you tend to see them getting on all these like hobby horses that are interesting to them. Particularly, you mm -hmm. see them being like, oh, I want to like, you know, mentor and promote these like very young or very eccentric or like very like, like kind of like underrepresented minority type people in the, in the field. You know, I, I've seen this many, many times, including with people that I know. And a lot of people get very bothered by this. But I, I, I know a lot of these people. They're good people. It's just that like they've achieved so much. You know, it's just doing more of the same isn't interesting to them anymore. So they want to do something that's harder. And the truth mm -hmm. is, it is hard to be like, oh, oh, how can we how can we build up people in AI, not just based on, say, merit or like who's the best coder or who's the hardest working, but also for this like more representative world or whatever. Like it's not it's actually I think people get obsessed with it because it's so hard, you know, and they're mm -hmm. like, I can do it. It's kind of their ego, right? So I'm talking about very specific people, but, but everyone knows what I'm talking about. And, yeah. and, and, and similar kind of thing here is that like, I think what's really odd about the Michael Lewis thing, there was a story here. It was an interesting story. It was pretty straightforward. You sort of hit it on the head and he just decided, I want to, I want to make it difficult. I want to like add, I want to add my personal perspective and essentially a challenge. And it, it, so then it's all about him, you know, which is, which I think is, 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 you know, it's tough, right? Because it's still probably a good story, still probably well written, but you know, you contrast it to someone, someone like Walter Isaacson, who obviously has a personality we know of, but is a little bit more in the background. You know, mm. I feel defensive on behalf of Lewis when I see him criticized as this humanities major word cell type, because that's me. I'm not a STEM guy, yeah. um, and I think that that, that definitely. Um, prompts a little bit of 
defensiveness that you can theoretically be something of a generalist if you pour yourself into the subject material. But I think your observation is well taken. Um, you need to keep your head in the subject material. It cannot just be personality driven. And that can really, I think in storytelling, even if he's, he's, you know, he's got a claim to being the greatest, uh, non living nonfiction writer. So obviously his, um, his skill set has served him well and identifying these personalities has served him well. But I do think you get a little bit older and maybe you start drifting into certain aspects of what you do. Um, and it doesn't all hang together. And so I've, I've got a little bit of defensiveness on his behalf and sympathy and a feeling of, yeah, but let's not just pretend that he was worthless because maybe it's coming a little bit unglued right now. Oh yeah. No, I mean, I mean, Michael Lewis is a great writer. I mean, I think you'd, you'd find very few people, um, you know, on Wall Street who haven't read his books, who weren't inspired by them to some extent. I mean, he is sort of, for better or worse, the voice of, you know, of quantitative stuff in Wall Street. And he's been really good at, you know, expressing it, including in Moneyball, of course. Um, it's it's Which actually kind of makes it a bit more sad, you know, I mean, I think... I mean, I was prepared for this because he kind of lost the thread in Flash Boys, which was a pretty good book, made some good points, told, told a lot of good facts. But overall, it was just 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 inaccurately represented the impact of HFT. It's it sort of, you know, it, it sort of uh, explained how it worked, you know, in, in where the facts were right, but sort of the, well, the facts weren't wrong, let's just say. But the conclusion mm. was strange and also, I think, kind of transparently wrong where the, the overall gist of it you get is HFT is this very bad thing and it's very unfair and it friends runs all your trades, which is just not true. Like, it just doesn't. Like, you're t- the, the, the arbitrage in different exchanges is completely tiny. It's completely imperceptible to I'm, you I'm, as someone who's I'm trading I'm guessing slowly, as somebody you know? not in this world, HFT yeah. is high-frequency trading. Yeah. This is my guess. Okay, yes. sorry. Yes, continue. Yeah, yeah, I should have clarified that. Yeah. And, 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 and actually, like, the really cynical view of, of the Michael Lewis thing is this, like, it actually is a book on behalf of old school traders, you know, sort of market makers who took way higher margin, who had much bigger spreads. Mm-hmm. You know, Wall Street used to have something called the kosher eighth, which is an eighth of a dollar was the spread between buy and sell. Um, electronic trading took that to one cent, which is much smaller. And HFT is, like, trying to exploit changes that are much smaller than one cent. You know, so you're you're really talking about just a like an orders of magnitude smaller spread on trades, and he opens with a book that's like, well, geez, like whenever I make a trade, somehow the the, the price always moves against me. Isn't this terrible? And mm. like that to me, even from the beginning, sounds like someone who's like, you know, all the sports lines are fixed, and uh, you know, Facebook is listening to our conversations and showing me ads about it, like all of these things that just sort of fit your confirmation bias that are just not true, you know? Um, yeah, no, I, I think that tends to track. I, I also think there's something interesting about popularizers of important ideas, perhaps not when you get down to the nitty gritty, having a whole lot of thought behind those ideas. I think you mentioned Thomas Friedman before. Um, yeah, Thomas Friedman is not a cool guy to like right now. If you said on Twitter, I'm a big Thomas Friedman fan, uh, people might make fun of you in the millennial and younger cohort. And yet, 
those books, uh, Lexus and the Olive Tree, they they have they they introduced concepts that are useful that were not in the American discourse. And so that's something that often happens where somebody introduces something and then we sort of act as though it was always there and we forget it was even introduced and then we call them a total fraud. So that's the, that's the cycle. Oh, sure. M- Malcolm Gladwell, right? I mean, he introduced a lot of concepts that were great and, and you know, no, no one would publicly admit to being a Malcolm Gladwell fan, but, you know, um, he introduced some stuff. Um, if you want to go even deeper, you know, Kanye, <laughs> but I mean, you see a lot of people who bring up sort of concepts and phrases that we all use. And, and, and I, I think we do live in a, in a pretty, in a pretty cynical culture. So I think, yeah, I mean, perhaps I'm being harsh with Michael Lewis. I just, I just, I just find it, it's it just, you know, to people who actually care about crypto and markets and, and understanding like the math of it correctly. Um, you know, it just, I guess it just bothers you when you think the person is going out of their way to not put mm-hmm. it in, you know, for it to be missing yeah. is okay. Right. Like Moneyball got a lot of things wrong and a lot of things missing, but it seemed like a pretty, pretty honest book. Like there was, there's nothing in it explicitly that was, that was excluded for, you know, m- maybe people would disagree, but, yeah. you know, the Flash Boys, again, most people, if they, if they think of actually a, a, a fun fact, a, a fun thing that I noticed was that even in the interview, Michael Lewis mentioned that when he talked to Sam uh, Bankman Feed for the first time, he told them how much he loved Flash Boys. So there uh, you go. Ah, uh, well, that's, it, look, a con artist would never tell you that they love your work in order to, you know, get your defenses down. I, I that's a pure expression of fandom right there. Um, and boy, you really do rack up the, the stereotypical male, uh, <laughs> avocations. I mean, we, we've got the, the crypto, we've got the, the high frequency trading, uh, trading, we've got the jujitsu, um, and we didn't even really hit baseball, man. We forgot about that, how you're, um, very much into the baseball analytics, or at least were. I mean, did that get boring for you? I've I watched you on YouTube talking about looking into how important velo is um, in pitching and how uh, there's a lot. You almost sounded a little bit like in your description of baseball and your investigation uh, investigations into it, like somebody who had been fascinated by it but is no longer fascinated by it. Is that the case? Baseball? Yeah. yeah. Um. I mean, definitely, you know, you, you, you know, you sort of, you can't do the same thing for, for too long. And I think, um, baseball was very interesting. It still is. I mean, obviously the, some of the stuff that my friends with driveline did and things like the MVP machine, even before that kind of brought my interest back to it. Um, but yeah, it's a bit, I don't know. I mean, sports is a tough one, you know, as, 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 as you get older, you have less time, you know, you, you, you yeah. can't follow the things the way, the way you used to, you know? Um, and, and, and now, I mean, you know, to, to, to echo an, an, another, another previous guest, uh, uh, Nate Silver, I mean, the, the games are fun. I love watching the playoffs. The energy is amazing, but like, they are just so random. It's kind of brutal. Oh, that's my least favorite aspect. Nate is impressing me as just a sports writer where you would think I would write more sports coverage classic sports coverage than he might but no he will pump out an eastern conference preview and i i'm just uh i'm i'm impressed i'm impressed with that you know i wish i still had that particular fire in my belly i like you know obviously i like the nba um but i just don't have that thing right now where i want to cover it deeply so we'll we'll end on this um 
or I should say, I want to cover the behind the scenes, sports business, sports culture, yada, yada. If you're a subscriber, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, well, we're looking at all your different hobbies, all your different uh, stereotypically male hobbies, whether it's a horse archery, uh, jiu-jitsu, whatever you're doing to be the most interesting man in the world. Uh, I feel like I have none of these hobbies. Uh, so Nikolai, which one do I need in my life? Which thing are you into right now that I need to add to my repertoire that is going to give me the biggest payload in terms of uh, satisfaction and uh, edification? Well, I would I would probably say the martial arts if your body can handle it. You know, I don't, I mean, I'm not one of these people who think martial arts are, you know, everyone should do it. I mean, you know, the injury and the risk is is there, you know, uh, uh, but, but I, I, I do think it's something that sort of transforms your thinking. And I think it's the closest that we have these days, at least in my experience to, um, kind of like a, an, an old school, like social club where people actually come from, you know, different walks in life, different things where you have something in common. You know, I think that I, I really, I really missed, you know, being on a sports team or something like that. Um, you know, I think a lot of those do that when we're younger and then it's hard to recreate it. And I think to me somehow, I mean, just getting together and watching football, even if it's with an amazing group of people that's well curated, it just, it, it feels a little bit, it, it, it feels like you're not doing anything, you know? Yeah. You so, feel that feeling after you beat a video game where you just feel kind of a little bit like you hate yourself afterwards. Just Yeah. Bit. Yeah. Um, and I think, and I think unfortunately the martial arts, like, you will get injured. You probably get skin infections, things like that. Um, for better, for better or worse, you have to deal with different personalities, people who want to go too hard or people who, you know, don't follow the rules or people who are rude and abrasive and people who, um, may be mentally neurodivergent in their own way. Uh, that's, that's maybe a little bit different from tech. So you, mm -hmm. you, you get all those downsides, but I, so I, I do wish it could be practiced in a cleaner, safer way, to be quite honest. I think it's a, it's a, it's a difficult thing, but, but, but I, but I think, you know, I think what probably improves your life more is probably things like cardio, but, um, but, but the, the, the interactive dynamics and, and then just the math and the puzzle nature of, of jiu-jitsu and martial arts is fascinating, right? It's like yeah. I remember long ago getting into a debate, what's, what's sort of more interesting and di more difficult in, like to your mind? Is it like rock climbing, which is also very nerdy and technical and like a physical puzzle or jiu-jitsu? My coach who's done both, like it has to be jiu-jitsu. You have a person on the other side. It's just like a... Yeah it's completely different it's, then it gets a static wall. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan. Um, but, 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 you know, there are downsides. Yeah. It clearly seems to be one of the hooks for a lot of smart people is that it's this chess in motion, um, where you're solving now, whether it's jujitsu or rock climbing, I do wonder if I'm at a disadvantage, I have small hands for my height, which, um, you know, was not something I would think about often until Trump became president. And then the people who are angry at him would mock him for his small hands. And I felt like I was catching a stray when they were, you so you're, know, you have Kwame Brown hands, Kwame Brown hands. Yes. Yes. I've, I've got that. And that seems like it would be a disadvantage in fighting. I think it's good to have, uh, what are some of the terms for just having some, some large, some large closet, some mitts. There you go, Maze. That's a great one right there. Yeah, some well, some mitts on you that you can so, really so actually, uh, actually, hit somebody. Actually, probably a much bigger disadvantage in climbing. For climbing, you definitely have the wrong body type. You're way too tall, and 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 if, and if you're going to be that tall, yeah, you, you do want to have the the meat hooks. But Jeez, um, I mean, how how yeah. short do you have to be to be a great climber? Oh my god. 
So there's basically two dominant body types for very top level climbers. One is sort of like short, stocky, like very muscular, but like, like low body fat and kind of like, you, you know, the type just sort of yeah. like, just like, um, kind of like a small, uh, jacked, uh, you know, man or woman. And then the other one is actually tall, but like very skinny. So someone who's huh. like maybe even as tall as six foot or six one, but like rail thin. Um, yeah. yeah. Your producer's saying, KD, it's KD is a little too tall. But, but definitely, <laughs> I, I don't think you've ever seen great climbers maybe above 6'2", but you definitely see at the higher end of that range. And these guys are like, because they have longer reach. They can reach certain holes that the small guys can only do dynamically. Um, mm-hmm. But but yeah, you, you do get these two, 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 two bubbles where you want to be short, uh, very strong and very compact or tall and like very like lanky, which is actually, by the way, the two, the two, the two types you also see uh, in like UFC and fighting. You, you see uh, very much those two body types as well. You see sort of like the Durantula type, like the guy who's like 170 and 6'4 and yeah. has like a really super long reach and is like skinny and doesn't look and doesn't look extremely like jack, but has certain advantages and actually is very strong. Um, and then the small kind of Volkanowski guy who's like stout and short and actually uses his short stature to his advantage. You know, mm. um, it can be as a wrestler, it's actually very advantageous to be short in certain ways. Even in rugby, we saw those guys who were short, like, like five, six, some of them were very, very good rugby players. They're so low to the ground. They're hard to tackle. They get up faster. You know, there's, there's those two body types. I would say, I would say actually the hand thing is completely irrelevant for, for fighting really. Um, not, not really a problem. In fact, you've had multiple world-class, like, World-level jiu-jitsu guys for missing a hand or missing fingers. That's actually oh. many times happened. Yeah. Okay. Okay. My. Uh, as long as you have one hand. If you have, if you if you're missing both hands, you have a problem. But literally, <laughs> like, like you had, you had, you had one of the best guys ever who was who was missing one hand and just with one hand, but still, you know, choking people and stuff. Okay. Well, that gives me a little bit of hope and. Maybe I will go in that direction, uh, despite my, as Anthony Mays calls it, my Brock Purdy hands, which might be why I'm such a, a Brock Purdy backer uh, at this point. I have uh, emotionally identified with him. Nikolai, you're just incredible in how many topics you can riff on. Uh, it's it's truly impressive. Uh, thanks so much for stopping by. I have a feeling of what you might want to plug for us, but what do you want to plug for us on the way out? Uh, thanks, Ethan. Yeah, uh, everybody, please check out uh, Deep News. So, unfortunately, deepnews.com was taken. Um, so, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's deepnftvalue.com slash news. Um, we have some other URLs we'll move it to, but that's that's sort of the canonical one now. And and, and please check it out. Yeah, we're, we're doing about 2,000 stories a day on, you know, 30 different topics. We have specialized subtopics for, like, AI stories, you know, uh, for, you know, Israel, for China, if you want to follow these kind of topics. And... You know, it's very much a work in progress. I would, I mean, I use it all the time. I think, you know, it's, it's quite good and quite fast, but it obviously gets a lot of things wrong. It, you know, misses some stories, although not the big ones, but obviously some of the smaller ones, you know, we're, we're, try, we're trying to filter out and prove the writing. It's, it's, it's a very difficult thing, honestly. Like, it's something that's such an obvious idea, um, but is in practice a lot of, especially non-AI things you have to get right. You know, is the story interesting? Is it repetitive? You know, is it confusing? adding recent context occasionally sort of a um a fun random fact is you know we're we're, we're to, to actually write the full stories we're using of course generative ai models and some of the gpt ones are old so without the context sometimes it'll occasionally say you know Devonte adams you know and he thinks he still plays for the packers mm. <laughs> things like that so there's like a lot of 
it's 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 really quite a mixture of very good stuff and occasionally like massive mistakes that a human would make. So um, you can sort of see that up front. We're we're quite interested in um, in feedback as we improve it. Well, I'm interested in the space. I can't wait to see what you do. And thanks so much, man. I would love to have you back. Good luck in your endeavors. Thank you. Replacing me and all my colleagues. Good luck with that. (laughs) 